there's still this appetite in the corporate world to protect nature. You know, the climate is burning at the moment. We are nearly off the charts in the first half of this year for global temperatures and air and ocean temperatures. You know, we're nudging up to the one and a half degree target that the scientists said was the start of a tipping point that we needed to try and avoid. So I think, you know, this is not lost on the world. It's not lost on governments or corporates. So corporates are concerned and they are trying to do stuff. They're just trying to avoid the, you know, the pitfalls of, you know, reputational pitfalls of um, buying something that may come back to bite them. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. Welcome to our Smarter Markets Summer Playlist 2023, where we're sitting down with our special guests midway through the year to talk about where we are and where we might be and need to be heading next. It's our beach reading in a podcast. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Guy Turner, founder and CEO of Trove Research. We'll be discussing the research that he and his team are doing at Trove as we try to push past the rhetoric to better understand the reality of how carbon offsets are being used and what's happening now in the voluntary carbon markets. Hello, Guy. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi, David. Nice to be here. Yeah, I really wanted to thank you for joining us today. I think it's fair to say that it's been a tumultuous start to the year in the voluntary carbon markets. It began, of course, with articles by The Guardian alleging that more than 90% of the rainforest carbon offset credits issued by Vera are worthless. There's also the lawsuit against Delta Airlines alleging that its carbon neutral claim is, quote, false and misleading because it is using carbon offsets as part of its strategy. These allegations really cut to the core of the integrity of the voluntary carbon markets and their role in helping us reduce carbon emissions. But the question, of course, is, are they true? And that's where I'd like to start our conversation today with you, Guy, and perhaps we should cut right to the heart of it, which is greenwashing. Now, these allegations are representative of the view held by some that carbon offsets have no place in getting us to a net zero world, but are simply a way for companies to claim that they are taking action to reduce carbon emissions in their supply chains without actually taking action to reduce the carbon emissions in their supply chains. You and your team at Trove have done the work of collecting the facts and the data and doing the research. So I was hoping you could start us off by walking us through how companies are using carbon offsets today. Is it greenwashing or is it for real? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. Yes, it's a very topical question when we get we see a lot of uh, commentary on in, in the media. So we've been collecting data on company climate performance, tens of thousands of companies, their targets that they've set themselves and also their use of carbon credits, amongst a whole range of other things we do. And we started looking at this question about six months ago. And yeah, the hypothesis from a lot of observers was that companies were trading off internal emissions with buying carbon credits or, or offsets. So if they were buying offsets, they weren't reducing emissions internally as fast, or if at all. And, um, you know, you can see the economic logic to that. You know, a dollar spent there is not a dollar spent there. 
So we, we collected and we put, a, put all our numbers together. We looked at the emissions performance of uh, about 4,000 firms over the last four years. And then we segmented out four or 500 of those that have used carbon credits. And we ran, you know, we ran sort of proper statistical tests to test this hypothesis. And we actually came out with a very startling finding was that on average, on average, not all companies, but on average, the companies that were buying carbon credits were actually had better carbon emissions performance than those that didn't buy carbon credits. And that was a sort of a puzzling finding. In fact, it was like the companies that were buying carbon credits were decarbonizing twice as fast. So 6% per year compared to 3% per year for the companies that weren't. Now, those are averages and median values, and there are distributions around that. So there are companies that are buying carbon credits that are not decarbonizing as fast as they should. And there are companies that aren't buying carbon credits that are decarbonizing faster. But on average, and we tested this with statistical, you know, with statistical significance, we looked at it by geography, we also looked at it by industry sector. By and large, those, those conclusions hold. And that suggests to us that there is not a dollar for dollar trade-off. It's not like there's one pot of money that they can go to and say, if I buy a carbon credit, I'm not going to spend it on internal mitigation. And this is a correlation analysis, not necessarily causation. So we had to sort of, have, we had to sort of like creatively think about what the reasons for this are. But one, one of them is quite obvious, which is if I'm now putting a price on carbon and I've got to then, I've got to spend you know, X millions of dollars on buying carbon credits, I'm going to work harder to reduce my emissions so that I have a smaller liability. The other one is sort of coming at it from the other way around, which is that the companies that are buying credits are already taking climate change seriously. So there's like a, it's, a, it's like a contingent a sort of action. And the ones that aren't buying carbon credits really aren't doing much about carbon and climate anyway. Whatever the reason, it sort of refutes the allegation or the accusation that companies that are buying carbon credits are using it as an alternative to decarbonizing. Now, there are going to be companies out there, and the ones that I think we need to you know, call out are the ones that are increasing emissions, doing very little on trying to abate their emissions, and buying dodgy, low-quality carbon credits that unfortunately do still circulate in the market, and call those out, and put the other ones on a pedestal, and really sort of draw attention to the companies that are doing really good stuff. They're you know, working hard, they're investing lots in reducing emissions, and they're offsetting their emissions as well. And I think we, we lack currently the tools to be able to draw those distinctions. We do. And just to clarify, one of the points you made when you said that, I believe that the companies that are using carbon offsets are decarbonizing on average, I think about 6% faster than others. Is that decarbonizing their own supply chain 6% faster or their overall effort, including the offsets? It, it is gross emissions. So it's not net of emissions. So that would be just a circularity in the equation. Uh, but it is only scope one and two. So that's their direct emissions from fuel use and their electricity use. So we don't include scope three in the emissions performance calculation for that, for the, for the sectors that, that we looked at. We also excluded oil and gas. And the reason for that was uh, they trade a lot of carbon credits as well as buy them for their own use. And we didn't want to get mixed up in, in the analysis that, that we couldn't disentangle. So those are the two sort of qualifications. We also put thresholds in there. So we said, you know, you had to be a material user of carbon credit. So you meet, it had to be at least 5% of your carbon footprint. And we ran loads of sensitivities on the, on the modeling as well to try and sort of sense check our assumptions. That's great. So it's gross. So it's their actual emissions. And then they don't get the credit in that 6% for any offsets. Right, right, great. right. And the ones that aren't buying carbon credits, the median the median uh, performance was 3% per year. So that's an emissions reduction per year figure mm. over the last, say, four or five years. Well, that's a really big deal that, you know, I think 
the hypothesis that what you're seeing in the data is that those that are taking it more seriously are taking it more seriously, and they're using both tools at their disposal. And the other hypothesis that having a price on carbon, at least internally, can really help drive behavior. I think it's really interesting and glad you've done that work and the research going through, I think you said 4,000 different companies. I think there's there's another point to that as well, which is this budget issue. So I think that if the hypothesis was that there's a fixed amount of money for decarbonization, that you can either spend it on offsets or mitigation. I think that assumption is also challengeable. And actually, I think the the budget that is elastic, it's variable. You know, you can go and find more money, perhaps from the marketing budget and spend it on carbon credits. That's not going to come from the same budget that you could spend on internal, you know, energy efficiency or renewable energy projects. So I think that's that's another factor that plays into it. That's interesting. And, you know, as you said, we should probably be shining a light on the, a negative light on companies that aren't taking it seriously, but shining a positive light on those that are, are doing the work and taking it seriously and making an impact. But I want to ask you, a lot of the criticism and the obviously lawsuits could make companies want to rethink their use of offsets. Reducing carbon emissions comes with a cost. That cost is largely taken for the benefit of supporting a carbon neutral or net zero claim. And the attempts to discredit these claims this year, you know, how big an impact are they having on the voluntary carbon markets? Do you have some metrics on how much it's reducing the use of the markets or the price of the carbon offsets? Yeah. So the numbers that we collect look at the amount of carbon credits being used by companies in in the first the first half of this year. So this all of this you know, these criticisms were sort of surfacing at the end of last year, Q1 this year. Retirements, this is the use of carbon credits by offset is down 9% compared to the same period of the first half of last year. So there has been um, a contraction. I think it's, I mean, this is also in the face of some fairly significant economic challenges as, as sort of interest rates are going up in, in most OECD countries. Inflation is very high. Profits are being challenged. Stock markets are down. So you know, what the baseline sort of expectation would be is is questionable as well. But yeah, retirements are down 9% from H1 last year. There's no getting away from that. A lot of that contraction actually comes from five companies. There are three airlines, Delta, EasyJet, and JetBlue in the US, which have counted for quite a lot of that 9%, and also um, Kering and Nestle, Kering owns Gucci. And those are sort of quite big users of carbon credits and, 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 and really like the association with that now they've restarted to they've said they're going to remove themselves from the market until the quality issues can be resolved so yeah it's but it's you know this is a nine nine percent drop it's not catastrophic i think my stock portfolio is down more than nine percent from when i last looked at it uh, a year or two ago so markets can go up and go down as well right right and curious is it having an impact on the price where carbon credits are trading yeah now in the voluntary carbon market one can talk about a price, but there really isn't a price. We can calculate a volume-weighted average price, and that is sort of stabilizing, really, but it's a basket of other project types, and there's been a bifurcation in those underlying project types. So certain project types, like the Guardian, had um, you know the, the 90% sort of figure about red, which is reducing emissions from deforestation, has shied a lot of people away from doing those kind of projects. Meanwhile, planting new trees be it on land or, or in mangroves on the coasts, have seen record high prices. And so there's still this appetite to in, in the corporate world to protect nature, 
you know that the, the climate is burning at the moment we are nearly off the charts in the first half of this year for global temperatures and air and ocean temperatures you know we're, we're, we're nearly nudging up to the one and you know we're nudging up to the one and a half degree target that the scientists said you know was was the start of a tipping point that we needed to try and avoid so i think you know this is not lost on the world it's not lost on governments or corporates so corporates are concerned and they are trying to do stuff they're just trying to avoid the you know the pitfalls of you know reputational pitfalls of um buying something that may come back to bite them. Right. And I wanted to ask you what I've heard from some of those who are against the use of carbon offsets. You know, sometimes when people like yourself put forward data about the quality of the offsets, how they're being used, how they're being monitored, the response will be, well, we don't trust the data. Is there a reasonable basis for that as, you know, someone who runs a research team and is spending a lot of time trying to pull together strong data? Well, I always trust the data that we collect, um, <laughs> and we're very transparent in all of our sources and um, assumptions and our modeling. And you know where we put quite, where there are question marks over the sources, we'll we'll flag it. So I think it depends on what data you're talking about. I mean, I think a good example, right? Just just sort of if we want to bed this conversation down into a sort of a concrete example, cook stoves in Africa, they're great. There's a lot of, there's 3 billion people in the world still using wood in open fires in domestic situations to cook food. And that's bad because it uses a lot of wood, there's tree harvesting, and, and also bad for health. And, and also socially, you know, the women, typically the women who are collecting the firewood don't have other, you know, aren't liberated to, to sort of spend time doing other things. And so there's a real sort of social sort of problem there. And when they cook stoves come in, so you burn the wood twice as efficiently, you use less wood, you spend less time collecting it, and, and more time is freed up. Air pollution, health is better. So genuinely, unequivocally, really good stuff compared to what was there before. The question mark comes in how many carbon credits you're then going to claim for that. And that's a sort of a scientific calculation of where does the wood come from? Is it coming from a harm, you know, renewable forest? Or is it just brushwood? Or are you chopping trees down and not replanting them? So all of those sort of assumptions that go into calculating the benefit of that from a carbon point of view is where a lot of the question marks lie. And we've done research saying, actually, a lot of those cookstove projects are claiming more carbon credits than they should be. Now, that doesn't mean to say the projects are not good. They are. They're just when you use the metric of the number of credits that those cookstoves are supposed to be producing, and then you use that to offset a corporate emission. That's where the challenge lies. But it doesn't mean to say the underlying project isn't a good one. It is. And we need to keep financing those those mitigation efforts. Now, going back to my original our original research that says that companies buying credits are also taking decarbonization efforts more seriously, that was a really important finding. If we found that companies were genuinely trading off the purchase of the carbon credit with internal mitigation and the credits they were using were proven to be or shown to be overinflated in terms of their climate benefit then that would be i think that would be a much more serious problem so we do have to get to grips with this quantification issue at the moment it doesn't seem to be a material problem it could so we do need to address it and from your experience how do we go about doing the research and collecting and analyzing data that can be trusted by people of different perspectives, so we can have a factual basis for these conversations. Are there things that you know someone who's not spending every day in it like you are should be looking at to better understand what they can trust and what they can't? Yeah. So again, sort of taking it down to sort of the fundamental level about how you calculate a carbon credit. The carbon credit is calculated by taking the difference between what you're observing today, and it could be a cookstove project or a forest that's grown or protection of a forest 
and comparing it with some counterfactual, i.e. what would have happened in the absence of that project. And you can rely on the measurement data pretty accurately. You know, I can tell you exactly how many trees are standing. I can tell you the carbon in them, plus or minus, instead of an error range. I can tell you how many cook stoves are being used. I can tell you if you're growing a forest, I can tell you how quickly the trees are growing, and I can measure those things. The uncertainty comes in the argument you're using to create this counterfactual, this baseline of what would have happened in the absence. Now, if you're growing trees, you've probably got a reasonable baseline. You say, well, there weren't trees there before. We planted the trees, therefore there are more, there's more carbon being, so I can see that, that's quite clear. But when you get into the case of like a protecting forests, you then have to sort of like do some pretty clever modeling to say, what was the expected rate of deforestation in that area? And, and there's lots of other sort of, sort of bells and whistles that go along with those kind of calculations. And that's where the uncertainty lies. So in terms of like the reliability of the data, one thing you should be able to rely on is the measurement of how much carbon is in that stock of trees or how many carbon emissions are being sort of emitted from that project. The difficulty is when you start to look at the baseline analysis. So there are, it depends on where you look. So the satellite monitoring of forests, for example, is getting better and better. And the quantification of the carbon in those trees is getting better and better. And that's, that's a pretty accurate and reliable sort of set of data that you can use now. That's an important thing to keep in mind that we're getting very good at measuring things, but of course you can't measure what hasn't happened. You can't measure the counterfactual. And that seems to be where a lot of the controversy is in these claims. And there is a way around that, which is a very simple way around it, which is what happens in Europe in the European Emissions Trading Scheme, it's what happens in California, what happens in Quebec, in Australia, in South Korea, in New Zealand, etc. These are countries and regions that have adopted what's called a cap and trade scheme. So you don't need to measure some counterfactual and the difference between what you're measuring and what, what, what might have happened. You just measure everything, but it's all capped within a bubble, within a system, and that cap comes down year on year. And um, if the emissions are higher than the cap, you've got, to, you've got to then reduce emissions to keep within the cap. And that's where the trading comes in because you can pay somebody else to reduce emissions for you. So that's kind of the, 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 sort of like the holy grail and the, um, the way in which it works in a number of other sort of areas. It's very difficult to apply that regulatory stick to many, many corporates, though. And, and the great thing about the global voluntary market is any company can, can volunteer to participate. These are voluntary actions, by the way. You know, there is no threat of regular. There is no regulation saying, you know, Microsoft, you have to offset all of your emissions into the atmosphere since 1976. They've decided to do it for the goodwill of the, you know, of their reputation. I think. And it's pretty amazing, given that it's voluntary. How many and such a large percentage of the biggest companies have made these commitments? And it seems like one of the the big challenges that the voluntary karma markets face is that, as we've been discussing, we're still a long way off from reaching a working consensus on what constitutes a quality carbon offset or a quality carbon reduction project. The VCMI and the ICVCM have both been working on this for some time now. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what makes this so difficult and are we on the right path or do we need to be trying something different? Two very simple questions with very complicated answers. I was actually one of the founders of the VCMI, the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative. And that, that organization was created about two and a half years ago to try and get to grips with this question that you started out with, David, which was, is there greenwashing? Are companies increasing emissions, not doing anything on climate, and trying to buy their way out of jail by using cheap credit? 
So the, the, the premise of the this integrity initiative is that in order to use a carbon credit, you also have to be walking the talk. You have to be reducing emissions and you have to be serious about it. Just buying your way out and I can, an oil company, for example, that's in continuing to pollute the environment, buys carbon credits and you know claims victory on the climate you know it rings hollow and i think everyone agrees should be should be avoided another great example was fifa in the world cup in qatar said the whole thing was carbon neutral and you could drive a truck through everything they said the emissions coverage was wrong the calculations of the carbon credit and liability was wrong the credits they used were wrong everything was wrong they never actually did it <laughs> in the end actually they never bought the credits so it was like a series of failures and i think the world's had enough and um, a lot of like the uk advertising standards authority a number of other sort of regulators are now stepping in and saying, hold on, you just you can't claim things that aren't true. It's false information, false advertising. And so, you know, they're trying their best to try and sort of tidy that up. But they need to be careful about not setting the bar too high and saying, well, you can only use carbon credits if you're going to decarbonize at 5% a year. So that, that would exclude a lot of companies that are trying to decarbonize, but not able to do it simply because of cost reasons, from participating in, in using genuine high-quality carbon credits. So they have to be very careful about that. And our analysis sort of says that according to the rules that have been proposed so far, you know, less than 5% of companies would currently using carbon credits would meet those standards. On the supply side, the Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets is trying to do the same thing in the quality of projects and the credits and again their standards that again really laudable objectives would exclude an, an awful lot of the credits that are on the market now that may mean that a lot of the credits on the market shouldn't be there and going forwards you know the standards needs to be improved but then that raises an important question which is well what do you do with all the credits that are currently on the market should they just be taken out of the market would they be just sort of you know, an amnesty and said look according to our new standard this is the way the world's going to work so this, it's a thorny problem. They're working on it. And the other thing is these are multi-stakeholder groups. So the Integrity Council and the BCMI are comprised of many, many worthy experts and, and, and non-governmental organizations. And they all have to try and agree on what to do. So, you know, There's no headmaster or Lord Chief Justice that will opine and suddenly say, right, this is what we're going to do. They all have to kind of collaborate and agree. And that process is unfortunately messy and time-consuming. And to what extent do you think we may need transparency more than one official standard of quality? You know, I think sometimes carbon offsets, you know, it says, oh, it, on the one hand, it should be very, very homogeneous. You know, it should be one ton of carbon not emitted or, you know, reduced or removed. On the other hand, there's, as you said, there's not one price for carbon. There's many prices, many different types of projects, many with different characteristics. And do we need a way for companies to be able to say, well, I'm using credits of different qualities, but maybe I'm accounting for them against my own goals in different ways. Maybe if I think the baselines have been too generous, I'm haircutting them. And instead of counting it as one, I'm only counting it as 90% of you know, what it says on the label. Is, is there room for that in the markets? Or do you think we need a certain threshold for quality for all credits to meet? Well, that's the aim of, of um, certainly the IC, the Integrity Council, and it, it, it was the aim of the standard-setting bodies um, like Gold Standard and Vera and American Carbon Registry and the Climate Action Reserve in the US, the big four. That was always their objective, and 
instead of unfortunately what's been found is those standards that they thought they were applying still have holes in them and therefore this next level of scrutiny is being introduced to sort of raise that bar and then there are there are private ratings that are companies like ourselves who are doing another level of due diligence on those projects and and, and ranking them across the whole of the market so we score and rank over 4000 projects across 30 different criteria to give that level of transparency but isn't it, that's not an either or with disclosure as well transparency and disclosure i think is incredibly important when the voluntary carbon market was sort of boosted and sort of given a sort of a booster injection by Mark Carney in 2020, the idea was that it would become a commodity. That would it would the carbon credit would become a vastly traded liquid commodity that companies could buy and sell, investors could buy and sell and hedge and and, and take positions on, and that liquidity would attract more capital and the whole market would flourish and produce a lot of climate benefits. Now that only works when the, the ton of a ton is a ton applies, and you can guarantee that that. And it doesn't matter what project it comes from. If you get a dividend from a company in your in your stock portfolio, it's a dollar. It doesn't, you know, it, it has the same sort of utility no matter where it comes from. And and that that's the expectation. A barrel of oil it doesn't matter what well it came from. Mostly, some are high sulfur, some are low sulfur, but by and large, it does the same thing. And the expectation was that the carbon market would follow that route. It's not turned out like that so far. The provenance of the credit is, is becoming increasingly important. And therefore, the transparency of that project, who did it, how is it being monitored, all of the, all of the information really is, I think, needs, it needs to be there alongside the claim on the use of the carbon credit that it's, that it's generating. Yeah, I think that transparency is incredibly important. And I got into commodity markets through the the oil markets and the energy markets. And I think everyone thinks a, a market they're not familiar with is very simple and a market they are familiar with is very complex. So sometimes when I hear people in the carbon space say that carbon can't be a commodity because a, a ton isn't a ton isn't a ton in the oil market. And I would take exception and say a barrel's not a barrel's not a barrel. And you know what typically has to have happen is the the consumer, the refiner who's going to run it through the refinery, needs to make sure it's fit for their purpose. And they'll pay less for a barrel that's not, or even not buy it if it's if it's not appropriate. And I think we need that level of scrutiny on the part of buyers and transparency. I think is what enables that level of scrutiny. So it's I'm glad that you're providing more tools for people to help them do that. Um, there is there are companies that are offsetting two or three or four times. Mm. I think the maximum I've heard is three times the number of credits that they um, that they calculate they need, just to sort of provide a safety net, and are doing sort of effectively doing that rating themselves. It's like building a medieval uh, cathedral, <laughs> just over engineer. Yeah, um, yeah. I wanted to take you back. You know, we started talking about the forest projects that were at the heart of the Guardian articles. They've been a large part of the supply of carbon offsets in the market. And so I wanted to ask you, how do we move forward with these projects? What do you see as their value and role and what issues still need to be sorted out? They're very high profile, but they've only contributed around 20%, like a fifth of the credits over the last year or two. You know, renewable energy credits, industrial gases, cook stoves, energy efficiency projects. There's a whole range of other project types. They, they get a lot of media attention. And I don't, I don't want to overplay their their status. They and, and the reason, you know, for good reason, I suppose, because forests are important, and you know, we're we're deforesting at an alarming rate still globally, and those destructions in habitats are are part of the very much part of the problem, rather as well as the carbon emissions that are being released when they uh, when the trees are felled. 
I mean, what needs to be done, coming back down to this baselining issue, the, the quantification of the carbon in the trees is, is getting better and better, and there's less error in that side of it. The way to solve one of the biggest challenges with protecting forests and um, trying to quantify the benefit is what's called leakage. And that's a technical term, which means that if I protect an area of forest, I can claim the carbon credits as I would have chopped that down. Well, I'm making the claim that I might have chopped those trees now and I protected that area. But what happens if I chop the, the forest next door down? So over a larger area, the net rate of deforestation hasn't changed. I've just cherry picked the areas that I've left standing and claimed that you know, I've, I've protected those. And that's called leakage. And you see it in a number of different areas. And the best way to protect against that is to just increase the size of the area that you're including in your calculation, potentially up to the national level. So countries, governments start to become a lot more involved in this because they control the, the um, concessions and, and, and the, land, the land use for the entire area. And then they can start to calculate you know, the overall rate of deforestation that would be expected and that. And then you can roll those sort of national level deforestation baselines into the project level kind of calculations. And then you can add them back up again at the end of the day and check that that leakage isn't, isn't occurring or is being monitored and, and um, compensated for in some way. So that's the main sort of tool that, that, that they're working on. Yeah, and that brings me, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about the, the role of government in the voluntary carbon markets, because you know, just now on the red projects, you know, looking at the prevention of deforestation at a more jurisdictional level, at a government level, is a potential way forward. Looking at cap and trade, as you talked about earlier, is another way to be able to get around some of the baselining issues that are troublesome. And so I'm curious, looking more broadly at the voluntary carbon markets, what do you see as the path forward from here? Do you see their future as one in which the voluntary carbon markets get subsumed and absorbed into the Article 6 markets that are tied to governments and to the government's NDCs? Or is there another role and another place for the voluntary carbon markets? I don't think it's an either-or question. I think it's an and question. So there are going to be uses for carbon credits where the government endorsement and you referred to the Article 6 sort of process, which is the country-to-country -country accounting of emissions, is important. And, and apologies for the listeners because this is, gets a bit technical. But under the Paris Agreement, every country in the world has set an emission reduction target, and it's self-imposed. It's not top-down by the UN. Every country has, has volunteered to take action. They vary hugely by country. The richer countries are asked to do more than the, than the developing countries. And therefore, they've got an obligation to try and reduce emissions. So there is this criticism of the voluntary carbon market that if a company invests in a project in a country and then claims the carbon credits from that, that project is occurring in a country and the emission reductions are going to also going to be accounted for in that country's emissions calculations. So are we not double counting here? The country gets the credit and also a company gets the credit. And the argument against that is that, well, actually, the, yes, you are, but it's not a problem because the company that is buying the carbon credit from that project, its emissions are never accounted for in the same system that the countries are. So actually, it's a double claim, but it's not a problem. It doesn't matter. And actually, what it does do is bring more finance into the projects and in the countries and more gets done. There are also applications, though, where the government, you want to, you definitely want to avoid that double, double counting or double claiming. And that would be, for example, where you've got a compliance system where, like in Europe, 
the emissions from all of the companies in the cap and trade scheme are being added up and calculated as part of the national totals. Another example is the um, international aviation sector under the um, what's called CORSIA, the Carbon Offset and Reductions Scheme for International Aviation under the UN, where if they're going to be making use of carbon credits, they have to hold their emissions constant at sort of 2019 levels. And any growth above that needs to be offset. Now, they need to make sure that any credits they're using are not double counted with a country's claims on their, in terms of their, their Paris targets. So the way to deal with that is if a carbon credit is sold from a country to say an internet, international airline, the country has to make an adjustment in their national accounts. And that's a very important, you know, that, you know, that retains the integrity of the accounting system. The difficulty is that the government then has to authorize that sale of that ec- or the export of that credit in order to make an adjustment in its emissions account. And we don't know that that system has net, not yet been fully sort of road tested. But that is one way of retaining the integrity of a carbon credit system. And so you don't, that would sort of avoid any risk of inflation or, or, or over crediting and it, it, it filtering through into sort of higher emissions. But as I said, it's not a problem at the moment because the company emissions are not, are not being accounted for in the same system as the countries. And I wanted to ask you, is the problem right now with the labels companies are applying to things? You know, to some extent, a lot of the criticism is around carbon neutral claims, but I don't think people would dispute that the the actions being taken are beneficial. So is it that companies need to change the language with which they're talking about their efforts at climate action? That certainly seems to be the epicenter of the sort of legal issues that are bubbling up at the moment. The challenges to Delta Airlines, uh, the class action against Delta Airlines saying it was carbon neutral, and there's been cases in the UK and in Europe as well. And it is these these words, carbon neutral, which have a very sort of definitive interpretation and are relatively easy to disprove. Um, actually, if you can't have a hundred percent confidence in the credit you can measure pretty easily the emissions that that company is being is is creating and therefore for the carbon neutral claim to be true you have to prove with 100% confidence that the carbon offsets reduced exactly that amount of um, carbon and if you can't then that claim is not true so so technically those two words are very laden and i think what you'll see is companies using alternative terminology to get the benefits of the same you know the same action and so that their customers and their investors can still see they're doing good things for the climate you know they might say we're being climate use sort of you know less specific terminology you know we're you know we're climate positive or we're um we're climate friendly or now then the regulators will probably come in and go well what exactly do you mean by this you know you can't just be purposely vague um <laughs> but I, so i think that you know that there is a lot associated with the actual words that are used. Yeah, the words matter. And speaking of words, I wanted to first thank you for being very generous with your time and your experience and your research with us and our listeners today. Also, you know, this is our summer playlist series on smarter markets. And much like we did last summer, we, you know, think of this as beach reading in a podcast, something to listen to while everyone's relaxing halfway through the year and thinking about some of the big issues for the back half of the year. But in that spirit, I wanted to ask you, you know, the words that matter for you this summer. What's on your beach reading list this summer? Would you be able to share that with our audience? 
Well, firstly, my uh, thank you for the question. It's a lovely question to answer. I mean, firstly, I'm, I'm, I should read more. When I founded Trove three years ago, I kind of knew what I was getting into, but I didn't realize just how preoccupying it would be. So my reading list, unfortunately, is a lot slimmer than it should be. And that's something I definitely want to change maybe this summer. But the book at my, uh, that is uh, by my bedside at the moment is, um, is one called How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't by Ian Dunt. And I thought I knew how the political system in the UK works, and I, I do to some degree, but this really sort of exposes the gory details and the and the, the traditions and inefficiencies in our political system and how random it is and also how uh, ineffectual it is uh, for effective sort of policy making. So it's, it's very educational and um, yeah, that's what that's my poolside reading. <laughs> well, thanks so much for sharing that with us. I hope you get some time by the pool. I know you're very busy. And thanks so much. It's great talking with you. Great talking to you, David. Thanks again to Guy Turner, founder and CEO of Trove Research. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our summer playlist 2023 with our next special guest. We hope you'll join us. This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important it's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week. <laughs>